You are listening to Half Torah, the Shear series where we explore the connections between the Parsha Shavua and its corresponding Half Torah. And here at the database with Rabbi Yeshua Eisenberg, this week's Parshios are Bahar and Bechukosai, the third double Parsha in just one month's time, which means that we'll be doing two Half Torah Shearim this week, one devoted to the Half Torah for Bahar, for the years when Bahar is laned by itself. And then, of course, a Shear to the Half Torah for Bechukosai, which is the actual Haftarah that's going to be read this Shabbos, as per the rule of double partios, typically the Haftarah is read corresponding to the Maftir, the last aliyah of the double partios, in which case it's the second parsha whose Haftarah is going to be read. We did see an exception to this rule for the last double partia of Acharimos and Kedoshim, uh, but for Bahar and Bechukosai, we'll see two different Haftaras. And both of them happen to come from Sefer Yermia, different parts of Sefer Yermia. We're going to look at Paraklam and Bays of Yermia for the Haftarah for Parshas Bahar. For Bechukosai, we'll be seeing um, from the uh, from Parak Tes Zion and Yud Zion, 16 and 17 in Yermia. And we'll talk about that in just a short while. But while we're here, I'll just mention that at the moment of this recording, it is Lagba Omer. So wishing everybody a Lag Sameach. If you want to know a little bit more about Lagba Omer and perhaps about the connections between Lagba Omer and our Parshios, we do have Shirim in the archives devoted to all of those. And they have been reposted in the database podcast WhatsApp group, which you could join if you reach out to me at the database at gmail.com. That's the data than base, B-E-I-S at gmail.com. That is where every link to every uploaded Shear um, is posted. We also find links that I repost due to their relevance. And of course, if you want to give a sponsorship and if you have questions, comments, concerns, recommendations for Shiram and others on the podcast, then all you have to do is reach out to me at thedatabase at gmail.com. That's thedatabase, B-E-I-S at gmail.com. But now let's take a look at our Haftaros. Um, and of course, as they connect to our Parshios, that's always the goal. As I dedicate this Shir, Lili Nishmas, Imi Mirasi, Chayrachabas, Davitzi, Haredi Kaparis, Mishkava, her Nisham should have an Aliyah. And the first Haftarah, the one for Parshas Bahar, comes to us from Sefer Yermia, Paraklamid Beis, Psukim Vav Thiruchaf Zayin, 32, 6 through 27. Now, what does Parshas Bahar talk about? So really, Bahar B'chukosai, they overlap, of course, as many double partios do, and I want to argue actually all of them do, if you look closely enough. Um, but as far as Parshas Bahar is concerned, it focuses mainly on the laws pertaining to Shemitah and Yovel. And of course, these words, um, what they exactly mean is not, not immediately clear. Shemitah means to leave something alone, to leave something fallow, maybe to abandon something. And Yovel is a much harder word to translate in the archives. Shiorim on Parshas Bahar, we've discussed what the Mepharshim say about the word Yovel. What exactly does Yovel mean? Not for now, but these two time periods are marked by leaving one's land um, and not... Um, and, uh, not doing um, agricultural work in their land. And there are other aspects that Yovel adds to the mix. But the point is, you leave your land alone. This is a, uh, this is a, these are mitzvot that are tuyos ba'aretz. They depend on, on, on Eretz Yisrael. They are Israel-dependent laws. And all of the rules for redeeming one's land as well, if someone sells land and one wants to buy it back to redeem it, so all of that is discussed in our parsha, Sefer Vayikra, Parak Chavhei. Now, this concept, particularly redemption of the land, is really the one that's brought to the forefront in our Haftarah. So again, taken from this passage in Yirmiya, the Haftarah tells us about how Yirmiya's cousin, Hanamel ben Shalom, he instructed him by Hashem's word to buy and redeem a field in Yirmiya's hometown 
of uh, Asanos because he was apparently the rightful Goel or the redeemer of that land. That is right because you're allowed to have a relative redeem the land on your behalf. So the Navi elaborates on this transaction. Yermia lays out the money. He writes a document. He secures witnesses. He leaves the bill with his scribe and disciple Baruch ben Neria ben Masaya, who puts it into an earthenware vessel for safekeeping. That's what the Haftarah describes. So this connection between the Haftarah and our Sidra is definitely a simple one, and it's there. But is there perhaps something a little bit more fundamental here than just the technical laws of redemption of land? What theme of Parshas Bahar is brought out in this account? Moreover, what is the significance of the story altogether? Why do we care? Why should we care that Hashem commanded Yermio to redeem a field? So the Novi actually elaborates on the significance of this transaction a little bit more. Hashem explains that this sale symbolizes that there will yet be houses, fields, and vineyards bought in this land once again. That the Gullus from the Holy Land will eventually come to an end. Everyone will return and business will resume in Eretz Yisrael. Now, Yirmiyah would respond in prayer to Hashem, describing Hashem's wonders from creation and the plagues against Mitzrayim to the story of the Exodus and then back to the Promised Land, back to Eretz Yisrael, Yirmiyah describes all of these things to Hashem. And in Yirmiyah's prayer, he faithfully declares that there is nothing that is yipale, nothing that is too far and wondrous, too far removed or hidden from Hashem. Indeed, this lesson should be familiar as it is the exact lesson which Hashem taught Sarah Imenu in response to her cynicism about the idea that she might bear a child in her old age. Hashem says, Hayipale, is there anything that is too far removed and too wondrous for me to accomplish? So Yermia, he reiterates that exact lesson. Now, although it certainly appears as though Yermia is merely just reinforcing this age-old lesson, Yermia himself seems to almost forget it just moments later, as Yermia turns from his tefillah to what looks like a lamentation almost. He's lamenting about how the people didn't listen to Hashem, that Hashem had exiled them from their land as planned by way of sword, famine, and pestilence, and how despite all of that, Hashem nonetheless says, no, no, I'm telling you, go ahead, redeem the house in Anasos. In essence, Yermia seems to turn around and then just challenge Hashem as if to say, how could you tell me to redeem the land that's inhabited by the Kasdim um, while our nation is experiencing perpetual exile? Yermia, having experienced the harsh exile, seems to almost express what looks like a loss of hope, almost like a, uh, like a, like a turnaround, an about turn, an about face from what he was just saying. He's saying, look, Hashem's able to do everything. Look at all the wonderful things you've done for us. And then Yermia just comes back around and says, but look how we are now. And you're telling me that everything's going to be okay? So we have to try to understand a little bit what exactly is the nature of Yermia's tefillah. It just seems like it's disjointed. And what's interesting is in response, Hashem responds with the closing line of this Haftarah, Hine ani Hashem eloke kol basar, hamimeni yipale kol davar. Hashem's response is very simple. He says, Behold, I am Hashem, the God of all flesh. Is anything removed from me? And as simple as it is, 
also a little bit, it, it, it seems that it's a bit profound too. Hashem's response seems to just be an echo of what Yirmiya himself had already admitted. Behold, I am Hashem, the God of all flesh. Is anything removed from me? The obvious problem here is not God's reaffirming of his lessons in faith, but again, in Yirmiya's apparently fluctuating mood, if we can call it that, maybe his attitude, Yirmiya himself once again said at the beginning that nothing is removed from Hashem. Nothing's removed from him. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is too miraculous, too wondrous. All of a sudden, Yirmiya needs to be reminded of the very lesson that came out of his own mouth. Like, what happened? So, we could explain that. It could be that Yirmiya wasn't actually challenging Hashem's abilities. But maybe he was questioning God's plan. In his tefillah, Yirmiya admitted to Hashem's abilities. That we know already. But what he might be saying is as follows. Hashem, I know what you can do. I know what you have done. You have taken us from exile to exodus. If that's the case, then Hashem, what is your plan now? How is it that you plan on making my redemption of a house in Israel meaningful when right now, at the present moment, we are in Golas. Show me your magic. If that's Yeremia's argument, then what is Hashem's response? Hashem's, resp- Hashem's response is, Ha'ipaleh, is anything really removed from me? In other words, Hashem responds by saying, you agree, do you not, that nothing is removed from me, don't you? So, says Hashem, relax and understand that indeed, I do have a plan. There is a method, a system here to explain both the current suffering and the eventual redemption. Indeed, after the Haftarah actually finishes, the Navi does continue Hashem's speech in which Hashem proceeds to explain the reasons for the suffering and how the eventual redemption would unfold. Of course, you would have to open up an actual Sefer Yirmiya and see the rest of it from from, um, Pasuk Chav Ches all the way to Mem Dalad where the Navi describes it at length. But the Haftarah stops, it cuts short before that, and leaves it, once again, as simple and perhaps as profound as, is anything removed from me? The point, though, is that Yirmiya is praying that Hashem demonstrate what Yirmiya already knows to be true, what he knows Hashem can do, to which Hashem replies that, indeed, he can do anything and will do something about the current situation. And Yirmiya is just going to have to be okay with it and accept not knowing what it's going to look like at the current moment, but to know that it's coming. He might suggest, similarly, that perhaps Yirmiya knew in concept of Hashem's ability to do everything that he wanted, but perhaps he did not yet know it in practice and experience, at least on the national scale. And isn't that the case, maybe, for most religious people? Again, not to compare us necessarily to the same Madrega as a Novi, the same Madrega of Yirmiya, but perhaps... To the extent that we can relate to it, maybe Yermia, in a certain sense, like many of us, hadn't truly witnessed a full redemption, which was certainly true for Yermia, so that in his time, he did not recognize fully that still, and even today, nothing is removed from Hashem. Meaning, we know it to be true, but do we recognize that when we see it? Do we see the salvation unfolding with our own eyes? And Yermia hadn't seen it. And most of us haven't either. And 
Indeed, much like Hashem's rebuke to Sarah, Hashem responded by telling Yirmiyah that even today he should not think that the plan for redemption was just abandoned. Just like the exodus that Yirmiyah admittedly believes once happened, there will be a geula in modern times too. Arashi in the same vein reads Hashem's response as if he were saying, Do you think that the future happenings are hidden from me? Right, Yirmiyah said nothing's removed from you. But then he questions Hashem, meaning Yirmiyah says, I see what you did, Hashem. And Hashem's response is, yeah, I know you saw what I did. But do you think that I don't foresee something in the future? Do you think, again, that the future happenings are hidden from me? In other words, the past we know is not hidden because it happened. Everyone has seen the past. And Hashem demonstrated once upon a time that he had it under control. And Yirmiyah's faith in the past is not the issue. He had Amuna. He had a genuine belief in what Hashem, God, has proven to be capable of. But maybe we can argue that, again, Amuna was not the issue, but maybe to a certain extent, again, on his exalted level, perhaps it was Bitachon, trust in Hashem's security for the present and future, which Yirmiya was truly being challenged at this point to accept. And this is something that we've discussed in the past um, in our Parsha Panorama Shia for Parsha's Bishalach. We spoke a little bit, sure this, we spoke at length about the subtle difference between Emuna and Bitachon. Right? They're often used interchangeably. And if you want a, if you want a basic English tra- translation that, that perhaps satisfies Emuna and Bitachon to at least differentiate them semantically, we translate Emuna as faith. Maybe stability might be, might be a little bit more accurate, that Moshe Rabbeinu's hands were emunah, as is described in Bashalach, they were stable, but we often translate it as faith. Bitachon, usually we translate literally into English as either trust or security. Now, we could differentiate in English between those words, maybe, even though they they're certainly overlap. But what exactly is the difference between them? What's the difference between emunah and bitachon? And in the past, we've quoted from Rabbi Simchaleb Grossbard in his in his book, um, it's, um, it's called "In Edges of Truth." Um, so, ed, um, or it might just be ed, "Edges of Truth," and in his book, he um, he eloquently offered uh, the following explanation in that sefer. He explained as follows: that Amuna, I'll, I'll give you a direct quote. Amuna is an intellectual certainty based on logic, common sense, or tradition. Bitachon is the emotional state of confidence engendered by that intellectual conviction. Once again, I'll repeat it. Amuna is an intellectually, sorry, intellectual certainty based on logic, common sense, or tradition. So let's stop there for a second. Amuna is something that you have in your mind. It's intellectual. And it could be based on many things. It could be based on just your own logic. You have Amuna in a certain logic, in a certain common sense, or in a Masora, in a tradition. I have accepted this. This rings true, and in my mind it makes sense. That's Amuna. And maybe we could even argue that even if to a certain extent it doesn't necessarily make sense, but you still know it to be true, right? You, you, you have Amuna in gravity. Now, you might not understand it. It might not make sense to you. And you might even have Amuna in the fact that there are certain places where there isn't gravity, right? Then what's Bitachon? Again, he says, Bitachon is the emotional state of, con- of confidence engendered by the intellectual conviction. 
So what is that? Amuna is something that I know, maybe believe, maybe somewhere in between. But bitachon is what I do with my amuna. What am I able to accomplish with my amuna to keep going? To say, emotionally, not just intellectually in my mind, but emotionally, I am okay. I'm going to keep moving forward because my amuna is strong. Right? You, you can know something in your mind and not necessarily, you know, not necessarily be able to act on it. Like all of us, you know, every person who believes with Amuna that the place to be is Eretz Yisrael and that if you go there, everything is going to be um, relatively okay if you're doing a mitzvah to follow what Hashem says. And not necessarily to say that everything you're going to get everything you want, everything's going to work out exactly the way you want. If you go to Eretz Yisrael to make Aliyah or, you know, on the dime just to do it, um, you know, off the cuff. But how many of us, including myself, who uh, at the moment of this recording, I'm standing in Gullis, and, you know, have not yet made the decision just to, to, to move, to pick, to pick up and move everywhere, everyone, because maybe we're lacking in our bitachon. Maybe we, we don't know, maybe we have uh, convinced ourselves, maybe reasonably said that we have a mission in Gullis, and that's why we, well, we belong here in the meantime. But maybe for many of us, we can't say that. We can say that we, we believe we belong in our Yisrael, but we just didn't have enough bitachon to... To, to take the to take the plunge like you know Nachshon ben Avinadav, right? Everyone vayimidu b'Hashem of Moshe Avdo. They they all believed in Hashem at that point, but how many of them were willing to take the plunge? So that's Amuna and Bitachon. And again, on Yirmiya Hanavi's exalted level, Yirmiya is not questioning things of the past. He's not questioning beliefs that he already has. The Amuna is strong, but his emotional response is reflective of a question, I'm not going to even say a lacking, but a question that, that, that pertains to bitachon about how can I move on emotionally? How could I emotionally accept what's happening with confidence and feel that things are where they're supposed to be consider, considering the current circumstances? What's going to be in the present and in the future? Right? You have a muna in the past, you have bitachon and what's going to be right now and in the future, right? That Hashem is the bore who once created the world, as, as my Rabbi Venison Sachs explains. There's the bore, and there's the manig who's still running the show right now as we speak, and who has a plan right now as we speak, right? That's uh, as the, the, the differentiation that my Rebbe connects this to the, to the Ramban, who explains the difference between Shabbos as a Right, it's a, it's a it's a it's a memorial of creation. One happened once upon a time, and in Yitzias Mitzrayim, what Hashem came and demonstrated in front of mankind that Hashem is still involved. What Hashem is still doing. So now, Yirmiyah is asking about a question pertaining to Bitachon. He had a muna, a genuine belief in what Hashem has proven to be capable of. It was perhaps a question of bitachon, trust in Hashem's security for the present and future. That was what, once again, Yirmiya was addressing at this time. Bitachon requires you to realize that even when it hasn't happened yet, even if it is yet hidden from your sight, Hashem still has everything under control, that it's not hidden from Hashem, because there's nothing too hidden from Hashem. 
And this concept of bitachon is something that really needs constant growth, as demonstrated perhaps by Yirmiyah's own speech, where on the one hand he can say that nothing is removed from Hashem, while on the other hand he can challenge Hashem under the pressure of that exile, because even the things we know in concept are based on traditions of the past, are often lost in practice, so that indeed when the going gets tough, sometimes we forget for even an instance that Hashem is still there, now and forever. We can sort of know a little bit, yet still shudder in fear of the unknown. More than a haftar about redemption of a field, this haftar brings out a major theme in our sidra, which really teaches us the first lesson in Bitachon. Right? The whole concept of Shemitah, which means to leave one's land and source of sustenance and income fallow for an entire year. That teaches us everything we need to know about Bitachon. Shemitah challenges us to make the ultimate sacrifice for Hashem, for His Torah, sitting back when we'd be more emotionally comfortable to work the field and retrieve our own food supply. Shemitah means letting Hashem be the provider for us. And even when Hashem assures that everything will be okay, even when we know in concept that Hashem is capable of providing for us, the Torah still anticipates our personal fear of the unknown, as the Torah writes, And yet you shall say, What shall we eat in the seventh year? We have not sown and we have not gathered in our produce. And that's the ongoing question. What will be? How can I know for sure? And as much theoretical faith as we may have, there will always be this question which casts a shadow of doubt, challenging our bitachon. There will always be questions. That is because the first lesson of bitachon is that for us, indeed, there is hiddenness. Things are hidden from us. One way or another, we will have to live with the unknown. That light at the end of the tunnel sometimes is hidden from us. We can even know that it's there, like Yermia did, but we won't necessarily see it because, again, to us, there are things that are pale. There are things that are hidden. They remain unknown. And in the same way, our sustenance seems hidden and removed during the period of Shemitah. And certainly our Geula seems hidden from the perspective of where we stand in Galus. So yes, perhaps the answers in life to us are hidden and removed. But to have Bitzacha means to understand that the answers are never hidden from Hashem. And apparently, that is all that should matter to us. Meaning, yeah, it will be hidden from you. And you're going to just have to let Hashem take care of it. It's not, it's not the most comfortable feeling. And yet, in a certain sense, maybe it is the most comfortable feeling to know that you don't have to take care of it. To know that, yes, you have to make certain decisions about your hishtad list, your personal efforts, you have to do certain things. But to know that everything else, it's up to Hashem. Right? The, sometimes the scariest thing, as Rafishal Shechter says, the most the scariest thing is when you have to make your own decisions. He he talks about it in connection to Shaduchim. Right? Perhaps the best thing you could hear in Shaduchim is that the person has rejected you and said no. Because this way you don't have any decisions to make. The decision was made for you. Hashem took care of it. It's a lot scarier when you have to make the decision. Do you continue to date that person? Is this person maybe not for you? What's going to be in the future based on your decision right now? Decision-making is really tough. Bitachon says, let Hashem take care of it. Yes, you, you do have to make your decisions. Your style is still there, all still in play. But to know that you don't actually have to worry about the future in a certain sense, that the future is not hidden from Hashem, and even though you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, it's there, and Hashem sees it, 
what greater security can there be than just knowing that you don't even have to know? Hashem says, you don't have to know. Nothing is hidden from me. So I'll take care of it. You don't have to know. Perhaps in a certain sense, nothing can be more comforting than that. And we will, Bezra Hashem will continue on this journey through understanding Bitachon in the Haftar of Parshas Bichukosa, because I believe it is really, even though an earlier part of Yermia, I do believe in a certain sense that it is an important sequel, even though, again, in Sefer Yermia, it's perhaps a prequel because it came earlier than this Haftarah. But in a certain sense, for the Haftaros of Bahar and Bichukosai, which might be its own new miniseries, the Bitachon series, we will continue that series, Bezras Hashem, in the next Haftarah, Shefer Parshas Bichukosai. But in the meantime, we should all be Zohar to stand up to our fear of the unknown, to keep strong in both our Amunah and our Bitachon by realizing that nothing is hidden from Hashem, including our final Geula and the coming of Bashiach, Mehera Bimenu. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Once again, a log Sameach and a wonderful Shabbos. Thank you for joining us here at the database.